the first six verses of Matthew chapter 5. So please follow along with me in your Bibles. This is God's holy word. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And now our text this evening. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here we end the reading of God's holy word tonight. Well, dear saints of God, as we return to the Beatitudes this evening, uh, I hope that there's one thing in particular that you have remembered over the last number of months as we have looked at Jesus' Beatitudes. If there's one thing I hope that you have remembered, it's this, that the Beatitudes here, Jesus' teaching here, contrasts the attitude, the, the characteristic, the virtues of the kingdom disciple with that of the prevailing spirit of this wicked, evil age in which we live. And we see this once again here in verse 6 of Matthew 5, this fourth beatitude, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who crave after righteousness. Because this kingdom characteristic, this kingdom ideal clearly contrasts the prevailing ideas and notions of our world who find the idea that righteousness being essential to the life of the Christian, they find that so boring, so out of touch, so out of style. I remember one time coming up to a stop sign, and in front of me was a vehicle with a bumper sticker on its back. And the bumper sticker said this, I'd rather be partying in hell than serve in heaven. I'd rather be partying in hell than serve in heaven. And doesn't that reflect the perspective of so many in our society who really believe that, that living wildly, living recklessly, living on their own terms, nobody telling them what to do, now that's real life. That's real living. This righteousness stuff, what a drag. What a drag. Even those who we know, who we would say are, are, are decent, law-abiding people might think that, although it's good to be moral in a general way, might think that righteousness should be pursued, but only in moderation. You might hear them say, well, I do my best to, to do good, but nobody's perfect after all. I do my best, but I don't get too bent out of shape if my life doesn't conform to every one of God's standards. Let's not get too serious about righteousness. You see, for many brothers and sisters, righteousness is a matter of convenience at best. But very few see it as a divine mandate, as something that is essential 
to the life of a Christian. And sadly, many Christians have bought into this way of living and viewing life as well. They see righteousness as something that's optional, something that's occasional. Maybe on Sundays we should think about righteous thinking and righteous living and speaking. Maybe on Sunday we can take time to be holy. But the rest of the week, well, that's, that's, just, that's just common time. That's ordinary time. But contrary to that view of our world and our society, our Lord Jesus here teaches us in this beatitude that righteousness, godliness, living according to God's commandments is a necessity of the Christian life. And without it, we would die. Without it, we would die. Righteousness is is part and parcel of what it means to be a zealous kingdom disciple. And so we want to see tonight as we study this beatitude here in Matthew 5 and throughout the Scriptures is that it is God who graciously satisfies us with the gift of His righteousness so that we can then go forth and seek His righteousness with our whole hearts. Let's notice that tonight under three points. First of all, we want to focus our attention on the need for righteousness, our great need for righteousness. Secondly, uh, the gift of righteousness. And then finally, the call to righteousness. First of all, look at me at the need for righteousness. Why do we need righteousness? Why does Jesus emphasize, among all the things he could emphasize here in these Beatitudes, in his Sermon on the Mount, why does he emphasize the need for righteousness? Why is it so essential? Why would we die without it? Just as we would die without some of the most ordinary uh, things that we need for living, food, drink, shelter, and clothing. Why do we need it? Well, the Bible is very clear that that we need righteousness in order to have fellowship, in order to have communion with our God, who is righteous. You see, we were created, brothers and sisters, we were made by God to live in righteous fellowship with Him. That's our purpose. That's what God created us for. True happiness, true blessedness is only experienced in our lives through a righteous relationship with God. And we look around us in the world and so many people are looking for happiness. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for satisfaction in all sorts of ways, but they'll never find it. They search for happiness in business. They look for fulfillment in money. They look for their purpose in sexual pleasure, in sports, and all the like, as if that's the end goal, as if that's the purpose of life, as if these things in themselves will bring them happiness and fulfillment and blessedness. And Jesus turns that worldly perspective on its head, and he says what we need for true and lasting happiness and blessedness is to be right with the God who made us, and that God is holy. He cannot stand in the presence of sin and unrighteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, if you try to put happiness in the place of righteousness, you'll never get happiness. It's a chasing after the wind. 
Try to put happiness in the place of righteousness, and you will never get it. And isn't that what we read in 1 John, or John chapter 1, when he says that fellowship with, with God is impossible without righteousness because God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And so as we think about our need for righteousness, we also realize that our greatest need is also our greatest problem. Because our sinful nature, our unrighteousness, breaks fellowship with God. Our sin nature makes fellowship with God impossible. It disrupts that fellowship. Scripture as a whole is very clear on this. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah writes, he prophesies, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, so-called, are like a polluted garment. Our iniquities, like the wind, he says, take us away, and you have hidden your face from us. Our unrighteousness causes God to turn His face away. We could think of Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which comments on the heart, as we heard about this morning. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately corrupt. When we come before the law of God, Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And so as we encounter God's Word, what we see is two things. We need righteousness. We need righteousness to enjoy the relationship with God that we were created for. And yet, that righteousness is the very thing that we have lost because of sin. And our unrighteousness separates us from God. It renders us spiritual corpses with no possibility of turning to the Lord apart from His mighty work in our lives. So what's the answer? What's the answer to this dilemma? Who can fill our need for perfect righteousness? Who can make us holy? Because that is at the center of our need as human beings crafted in the image of God, to be holy to be righteous, to be restored to fellowship with God? Well, the answer secondly to that wonderful, the wonderful answer to that important question is God Himself. God Himself is the answer to our need for righteousness. He answers our need for perfect righteousness. He is the one who fills us. He's the one who quenches our thirst, who satisfies our hunger, who fills us with the righteousness that we need to be right with Him, righteousness that we don't have by ourselves. Something very important we must understand here about Jesus' teaching here, He's not suggesting that we can, by our good effort, by our good intentions, achieve the righteousness that makes us happy and blessed. No. It is a given righteousness. It's not an achieved righteousness. It's a gift. It's a given righteousness. And to those whom God has, has given this hunger and thirst for righteousness, they can be assured that He will also fill them with the righteousness needed to be restored in fellowship with their God. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why it's good news, brothers and sisters. 
that God provided a full and perfect, complete righteousness for us, apart from our futile efforts. And He did that through His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who satisfies our greatest desire to be free from the power and the desire of sin and to be filled, to be satisfied, to be counted righteous before God. How does He do that? How does that work? It's very important that we understand that. It's very important that we understand how God makes us the beneficiaries of Christ's righteousness, and we learn to understand that, how that works as we rehearse the gospel over and over again. And the gospel goes like this. Scripture tells us that no human being will be justified, declared righteous in God's sight by obeying the law. Because the law, if it does anything for us before we are regenerated, it exposes our sin. It exposes our unrighteousness. Our obedience is so meager, it could never contribute positively to restoring our relationship with God. That's where the gospel begins, with our total depravity. But the good news is this. The good news is this. Paul says in Romans 3, 21 to 22, but now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, And what is that righteousness? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the good news, that God, by the gift of His Holy Spirit, gives us faith. And through that faith, God imputes or He transfers Christ's righteousness to us. God counts us righteous, because He ascribes to us the gift of Christ's real, perfect obedience. You see, brothers and sisters, what happens at the cross of Christ is this, a great exchange. A great exchange takes place. On the cross, Jesus, who's perfectly righteous, He receives God's judgment against our sins. And there He paid the penalty for those sins that we deserve to pay. And there on the cross, He satisfied God's wrath against us and against our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus received the punishment. He received the wrath that we deserved for our unrighteousness. That's one part of the equation of the great exchange of the gospel. The other part is this, that we, the guilty ones, the sinners, the unrighteous ones, we receive with empty hands, passively, We receive from God the righteousness that Jesus acquired through His obedience to God unto death. 
And the result is this, that although once we were far off, separated from God, we are now reconciled with Him. The fellowship broken by our sin is restored through Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul rejoices in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, and he says that Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ Himself is our redemption. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our righteousness. He offered Himself to satisfy our hunger and thirst. And that's why during His ministry, He said in John 4, I am that living water. Come to me and drink and be satisfied. I'm the living water for your sin-parched soul. That's why Jesus said of Himself in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Those of you who hunger, come to me and eat. You will be filled. You'll be satisfied. Because it is Jesus alone and no other who satisfies our deep spiritual hunger and thirst, our great need to know God and to commune with Him as we were created for. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you tonight, have you quenched your thirst at the well of Jesus Christ? Have you satisfied your hunger on that sufficient spiritual bread? Or are you still yearning and striving after things that will only leave you empty and unfilled? I implore you, Our Lord Jesus implores you to turn to Him because He alone is your perfect righteousness. He alone is the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your sin-parched soul. Well, we notice finally, brothers and sisters, that God's work in us isn't finished yet. We might think that once we become Christians, God is is sort of done with us. He he takes the training wheels off the trike, and He pushes us out into the world, and there we go. We pedal out into the Christian life without any help and without any direction. But that's not the promise of our God here. No, God's work isn't finished when we become Christians, when that relationship between us and God is restored. God's not done yet. It's just the beginning. Because God wants to develop a new righteousness within us that matches the righteousness that comes from outside of us, the righteousness that is accounted to us. He wants to develop within us a new righteousness that matches the righteousness that is given to us, that is outside of us. Having been justified by grace through faith, the Lord continues to nurture in us a hungering and a thirsting after a righteousness that will actually characterize our everyday lives. And so when Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, He's also calling us to something. He's calling us to do what is right. He's calling us to follow God's righteous commandments. We are called to live in full accordance with the will of God. And isn't that what we see right at the beginning of the Psalms? The Psalms, like the Beatitudes, instruct us in the blessed life. 
And look at how the psalmist begins. And as Reverend Niemeyer has so helpfully pointed out to us, Psalms 1 and 2 really set an agenda for the rest of the psalms. What's the way of true happiness? Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The blessed man and the blessed woman are attentive to God's commandments in everyday life. And how could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? How could we have an earnest desire to stand righteous before God's face, to be justified? How could we desire that and rejoice in that and not rejoice or desire to continue doing what is right for the glory of God. Desiring to do righteousness automatically follows from the joy of knowing that we have been declared righteous in the sight of God on account of Christ. And so part of the good news of the, of the gospel is that God is still working real righteousness in our lives so that our lives actually reflect our righteous status in Jesus Christ. By His Spirit, God is creating in you an intense desire, a consuming passion to live in a way that pleases the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, the, the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see, our desire to do good, our desire to live righteous lives comes from God, but He also works in us to shape our motives and our choices so that they conform to His good pleasure, His righteous will. I want to close tonight by just pointing out three ways in which this hungering, this thirsting, this craving after righteousness should show up in our lives. First, if we crave righteousness, then we will want to know God more and fellowship with Him more. We will want to know and have fellowship with God more. If we crave righteousness, we will earnestly seek God in His Word. We will want to know what He has said. We will want to know how we can follow His Word in our everyday lives. We will want to know how we can devote ourselves more and more to prayer, to meeting with the saints, to serving one another as we fellowship with the Lord. We will have a greater desire to enter into His holy house to worship Him, one thing I hope is that during this unprecedented time for our congregation, in which we have been kept from coming together in a corporate setting to worship the Lord with one another, I hope that this time apart has increased your desire to come and meet with the saints before the face of God and to come as often as you can. Because one of, the, one of the fruits in our lives, one of the evidences that we 
that we crave righteousness is that we desire to know God and be with Him as much as we possibly can. And so I look forward to the day when we can meet again. I look forward to the day when the pews will be full of worshipers who desire to fellowship with God. I hope that this time apart has increased your appetite for the corporate worship of God. Secondly, if we crave righteousness, we will despise our sin. If we crave righteousness, we will despise our sin. Ian Duguid, a a commentator, writes this. He says, it's like drinking salt water. It's like drinking salt water. The more of it we drink, the thirstier we become. So also, the, the more we grow in righteousness, the more we become aware of the thoughts and the ideas and the attitudes that are not yet placed fully under God's rule. The more we become aware of these things, he says, the more we long for them to be placed under His rule. I remember some years ago, after preaching a sermon here on the topic of sin, one of the the oldest members of our our congregation came up the aisle to shake my hand after the worship service, and he said, you know, I'm 90-some years old, and I'm more aware of my sin now than I ever have been, and I'm more disgusted by it as the days go by. And I said to him, praise God. I said, praise God. I hope and I pray that someday I will be where you are, because clearly his appetite for righteousness had grown those many decades had grown to the point where he couldn't stand the sight or the thought of his own sin. And that is how it should be for us as well. If we are growing in our love for righteousness and godliness, our sin will become far more repugnant to us. But finally, if we crave righteousness, we will pursue it for the glory of God, not the praise of man. We'll pursue it for the glory of God, not the praise of man. This is so important for us to grasp as we think about living a righteous Christian life because the motivation for us, the motivation behind the pursuit of righteousness is always and must always be the worship and the glory of God. It should not be a matter of doing what's right in the eyes of others so that they praise us as a particularly good person. It should not be uh, to stay out of trouble, to stay within the law. It's a matter of doing the right thing as an act of worship to the Creator God who has revealed Himself to us in the Bible. We're called to pursue righteousness not as a moralistic pursuit to try to prove ourselves to others or to God. We aren't to be like the Pharisee of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. For indeed, Jesus says, our righteousness should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Since they weren't pursuing righteousness with a godly motivation, but for self-glorification. They weren't pursuing godly righteousness. They weren't hungry for godly righteousness because they were already so stuffed with their own self-righteousness. That is not what we are to do. That should not be our motivation. 
We must perform our righteousness not for everyone to see, but in quiet and humble devotion to the God who has graciously saved us through Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness this evening? Do you feel your appetite for godliness growing day after day? Do you feed that desire by meditating on the gospel and through worship? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will certainly be filled. And we have been filled. Our spiritual emptiness has been filled to overflowing, even as we seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this look at the disposition of a kingdom disciple. You call us as the blessed men and and blessed women of Your kingdom to seek Your righteousness with our whole hearts. And You tell us that if we desire to do Your will, that You will not turn us away, but You will bless us richly according to the fullness of Your blessing. And yet we confess, we know that for all our intense longing, we cannot fill ourselves with the righteousness that You desire. You must fill us. And so we know that this righteousness and the hungering and thirsting after it must be Your gracious gift to us. First, You must give us the righteousness that is Christ's. And it is because of that gift that You accept us, that You make us citizens of Your kingdom. It's on that account which You find it fitting to fill us with a hunger for righteousness as we look forward to the day of righteousness when all will be made right and we will be perfected before Your sight. Strengthen us as we seek to live holy lives before Your glory, for Your honor and praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.